Hello and welcome back to Core Ideas, the podcast interested in all things related to lake sediments and paleolimnology. My name is Adam Jaziorski, and as always, I'm here with my good friend, Josh Steenpunt. Good evening, Adam. How are you? I am doing pretty well, pretty well. We've got a milestone that we're reaching this evening. Yes, indeed. Because today's episode, well, I guess we've got two milestones. One it, uh, is number 50, which is hard yes. to believe. Even it is very hard. Our furious pace, we have still managed to hit 50 episodes of the show. Uh, and on top of that, it's going to conclude our current episode arc, core reading lists. That's right. We This is the fifth? We did five in this arc? I, I, believe, think, I believe so. Like slightly abbreviated arc. Slightly yeah, a more little work bit. than we uh, um, realized when we proposed yeah. it. Yeah, for sure. And uh, and the uptake hasn't been amazing on them. <laughs> In comparison, the the reward to effort is uh, not great. So huh. maybe we'll move on to something. Although one thing to say in, in our big up, you know, like year one, year two episodes, we did short little fractions. This is a proper episode, even though it's number fifty. So it's not all that celebratory. Yeah, just absolutely. Don't turn it off now. <laughs> um, but yes, regular listeners will remember that this. Arc theme is developing introductory reading lists for a variety of paleolimnological topics. And given that it's the last one of the series, um, we thought it would make sense to combine it with the now sort of recent announcement that John Small, our PhD supervisor, was awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award by the International Paleolimnology Association at their meeting, I guess not earlier this year, I guess late last year. Late last year, yep. And John, uh, Josh was in attendance. I was. Yes. And um, yeah. And so um, if you are a real regular listener, uh, you may remember our discussion with John way back in episode 23. That uh, was the final one of our History of Paleolimnology series and how his career was intertwined with the acid rain debates and the establishment of paleolimnology as a quantitative science. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was a good it was a good meeting. Uh, I originally had intended to, you know, take my recording stuff and do podcast content and get sound bites from everyone and did none of that, including from John. I did ask him and then never followed up. <laughs> so sorry about that, dear listeners. Uh, but it was a good meeting uh, for all of the awards. Uh, that's always a highlight of uh, the, the paleo meeting for me is seeing the lifetime achievement awards and the service awards and the early career awards. Uh, and it was good to see that John got one of them. I think they are named in honor of Rick Batterby. It's the Rick Batterby lifetime achievement award, even um, not uh, Rick Batterby still around, um, but in honor of his contributions and talking about all of John's makes sense. We can talk about some of the highlights of the Pearl group. Yeah. Um, and so I guess it really, you know, when we first tackled this, the question became of what kind of list to make, um, yeah. the, you know, John is a prolific author and there've been many publications from his lab over the past, I guess, 40 ish years now, might be correct. 40 years. This, yeah. Didn't he finish yeah. in 83 something or start his position in 83? It's in that range. Definitely. Yeah. Pushing 40 years. On on the cusp, if not, has passed that marker mm -hmm. yet. 
Um, and, you know, has taken his research in all sorts of um, directions over that time. Uh, both Josh and I did our PhDs in the lab, so we've got lots of ties. I guess we'd be biased to the second half of that. <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, of, yeah. the, of that time period. Um, and, you know, the, the most obvious thing that we first looked at is, well, let's take a peek at his most cited list on Google Scholar. Um, yep. What would that list look like? And I'm going to rattle some of them off quickly. Sure. Yes. Uh, do you want to go through? Uh, so my first thing is I was surprised how many of them were were um, n led by other people. So not only is John a prolific author, but he's a prolific collaborator is the thing that jumped out uh, at me. Uh, why, don't, why don't we just list them off and then we can talk about it more. Okay. So uh, number one, I don't know, I didn't I didn't keep track of the actual citation counts, uh, but no. these are just what the order that they appear. They're in the thousands for sure. Uh, Read it out, 2019 in biological reviews, emerging threats and persistent conservation challenges for freshwater biodiversity. Small et al. 2005, climate-driven regime shifts in the biological communities of Arctic lakes uh, in uh, PNAS. Uh, Kaufman et al. 2004. Holocene thermal maximum in the Western Arctic, uh, zero to 180 degrees west in Quaternity Science Reviews. Williamson et al., 2009, in Limnology and Oceanography. Lakes and reservoirs are sentinels, integrators, and regulators of climate change. And number five would be Dixdale, 1992, in Environmental Science Technology, Diatoms, Powerful Indicators of Environmental Change. And my initial reaction after like you know pulling that list up was that's not particularly fun. No. Uh, it's I mean some great papers in there. No oh doubt. yeah, no, not knocking the papers of the science, yeah. but in terms of like talking about them in the abstract level, mm -hmm. you know, it almost becomes a meta analysis of meta analyses. Pretty much, yeah, for sure, and pretty disparate. Like there's not really a, a theme that ties them together. Um, I mean, it's a couple of northern papers, a couple of. Well, one method paper. I was actually a little surprised the Dixit paper was so high on the list. I mean, obviously an important one. Um, yeah, nothing really ties them together. So let's do something else. Let's, let's do something else. Five let's others. I mean, in some ways that's nice. We get to highlight five more because, you know, the small at all PNAS paper probably would have made it onto a list. Mm -hmm. um, but by doing so, we can pick out another one because that one's pretty well known. And, and maybe we can think of in the list that we put together papers that we're particularly interested in, papers that highlight uh, research that um, uh, is unique to, to the Pearl group and, and really things that John's well known for. Uh, there's that. And then also, um, I think there's an element of introducing the rule of cool. And That's right. it does not have to be a particularly highly cited paper as uh, and to get onto this list and just more... Uh, in the realm of things that we think are cool and or neat um, and reflective of, you know, John and Pearl's work studying, I guess, Northern Perlio. Northern Perlio. Love it. All right, Adam, where would you like to start this list of Northern Perlio highlights? Uh, so I think in terms of my personal feelings about Pearl's greatest hits, I think the one 
that really stands out for me would be uh, a science paper, so a high-impact paper uh, from 1994 by Douglas Adam. So this is Marianne Douglas, who did her PhD uh, with John uh, many months ago. Cohort, yep. One of the first group that was definitely, I didn't know, I've met her a couple times, uh, don't know her particularly well, but definitely saw that picture in his office of that first cohort of PhD students jumping up steps mm-hmm. of Grant Hall while passed many, many times. And the title of the paper is Marked Post-18th Century Environmental Change in High Arctic Ecosystems. For sure. Yeah, I've read this paper many times. I remember reading it. I think I may have ended up reading it um, before I even started working for John in uh, in his limnology course. Uh, it came up a couple of times. Um, yeah, it, that, that there's a lot of reasons that this paper could make it onto a reading list or a best of list, both of them. I, I think it's topical still, like the interpretations of it, very much a good example of early understanding of the impacts of climate change on lakes, how paleo can uh, uh, be used to infer those changes, but also at the same time, the interpretations that are used to make those inferences still apply to northern paleolimnology types of climate reconstructions today. The diatom floristic changes, you could cite those. You probably would find more recent ones, but you could easily just cite this Douglas et al. paper and be a, a good descriptor of the things that are being seen still across the, the circumpolar north um, yeah. on top of its significance. Yeah, and just for those that not familiar, I'll be looking this up later on when we make a post about it in the show notes. Um, so this is looking at paleolimnological data from three high arctic ponds uh, located on Cape Herschel of Ellesmere Island. So very, very far north. You've never yes. been there, have you? I have You're not never part of that. Group? Never been to Ellesmere Island. Nope. Yeah. So the Cape Herschel research was definitely one huge aspect of uh, uh, the work done at Pearl. Um, and yes, showing the impacts of climate change way up in the high Arctic back in the early nineties, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, in many ways, I imagine if you told them back then, you know, when the paper is being written in 1994, that whether or not climate change, that the climate change debate would still be raging in some level and, um, would be viewed as ridiculous when they're showing evidence of it in like one of some of the most remote regions on the planet dating yeah. back to the late 1800s. Yeah, and I think they got pushback uh, on uh, the on the idea at that time uh, from, you know, the initial not not initial climate debate and the skeptics and all of that, but it was really when it was ramping up. This is where evidence from all sorts of environments, all different indicators uh observational, inferential, all of them started to accumulate and to really push that debate. And that's when the pushback started as well. Yeah, I agree. I think they'd probably be horrified to think that we'd still be having this pseudo debate on the topic, at least Um, a very loud debate on the topic uh, 20, 30 years later. Yep. Anyway, so... Yeah, no, it's a key one. I think I don't. I don't know when I would have read it first, but definitely early on, and as I became aware of John's research and paleontology in general, um, and and they went back to Cape Herschel many times, so many times. Yeah, 
there's a lot of papers that came under Cape Herschel. This is, I don't think it's the very first one because he worked with Wes Blake from the GSC, Geological Survey of Canada, uh, and others there. But it, it was it's the first big one from Cape Herschel, and there have been others since then. With primarily led by John and Marianne. So a good one to sort of summarize all of that Cape Herschel research. Uh, not summarize, to uh, exemplify all of the Cape Herschel research. All right. That's one. Number two is uh, one. Uh, that's a little bit of a bittersweet one to add to the list by Bronwyn Keatley, who and others who um, Bronwyn recently passed away, unfortunately. Um, the paper came out in 2008 in Arctic, Antarctic, and Alpine research, and it's called Prolonged Ice Cover Dampens Diatom Community Responses to, Cl- to Recent Climate Change in High Arctic Lakes. So yeah, so definitely, definitely inserting on a sad note in, in terms of uh, Broman having passed on, but this one always stuck out. So this was like came out shortly after I joined the lab, um, or at least uh, was being worked on as shortly after I joined the lab. And this one really jumped out at me as one of the cool kinds of studies that you can do in paleo. So it's basically a side-by-side comparison of lakes uh, where one was, it's like taking advantage of a natural experiment uh, Mm -hmm. situation where you have two lakes that in the high Arctic that are essentially side by side, but the key element is that there is a slight difference in whether one was in shade most of the time versus one was more open. And then using that as an experience to compare the uh, uh, diatom floor between the two and, and over, you know, paleo-limnological time, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I talk about this paper a lot for that exact reason is that it's a great example of how you can you can test hypotheses with environmental data um yeah and the and you get the not you get the uh results that you expect but it perfectly aligns with the understanding of the geographic setting that the uh that the lakes and therefore the sediment cores and the diatom assemblages uh, existed in 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 the real world and how sensitive uh they are to climate change and to well to, to environmental drivers broadly but in this case climate uh where it is uh the the primary driver of change yeah yeah exactly great paper talk about it a lot and uh and good to to mention Bronwyn who I don't think we've mentioned that uh, Bronwyn passed away uh on the podcast I the very first thing I ever did in paleolimnology as a summer student uh, was weighing samples for di- and then digesting samples for diatoms for Bronwyn possibly these very ones I don't know uh, but yeah back in two thousand and six yeah no I think uh, I've got a very key memory of uh, Bron Bronwyn is like one of the senior PhD students when I first joined the lab and like within the first week or two. Um, I walked into, up to her desk and, you know, it was like an open shared office knocking on it. And so I, and I just said to her, uh, hi, bro, when, uh, you got time, I got a dating question and she just deadpan turned around to me and said, I'm sorry, I'm, in, I'm engaged. <laughs> <laughs> that yes, was like one of my exactly. first, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a perfect example of it. Quiet, but damn funny. Yeah. And as quick as you could imagine. Okay. 
So moving on to paper number three. Uh, flying, flying through this list. Yeah, it's a quick one. Uh, we um, uh, settled on Blaise, Blaise et al. 2005, another science paper, Arctic Seaboards Transport Marine-Derived Contaminants. Very good. Yes. Uh, as we were thinking about this one, there's a, a few papers, again, from this project. These kind of like uh, ones that summarize sort of the, the thrusts of the work that have been done in the north for uh, by Pearl and Pearl-aligned researchers, because Jules Blay, who is a professor at University of Ottawa, who I uh, postdoced with for a little while and Jenny postdoced with for a little bit longer, um, is a paleolimnologist, but also an environmental chemist, toxicologist, all those things. And, uh, and here we can see a good example of using paleo to reconstruct contaminant concentrations. So there's that aspect, but also as a real interesting introduction to Cape Vera, this cool place on uh, Devon Island, I think. Um, and in addition, it ties in quite nicely to what we talked about last time with the coronamid uh, paper, uh, the very last of the coronamid oxygen reconstructions by Emily Stewart, which were from these ponds. Yep. And again, this is another one looking at um, lakes, I guess, downhill, downstream of large uh, bird colonies, in this case, northern fulmars, and looking at these nutrient-enriched lakes. And in this particular case, it wasn't just looking at the eutrophication type effects, but actually looking at the uh, persistent organic pollutants that were being yep. um, deposited or, I guess, concentrated within the lake due to the um, bioaccumulation, bio-magnification. From, from the, all, the, all the guano uh, flowing into the, the lake. Crazy poop. Yeah. And actually, you know, well, there is a corresponding production diatom paper that Bronwyn Keatley uh, also led, I believe, the Cape Vera stuff. Um, and, and it's just a really interesting area. There's a great picture that I'm sure is available out there of John falling into one of these ponds uh, when he was sampling it. And it's like falling into a pea soup. They're so green. Um, so amazing photos um, taken like high, high angle photos from the cliffs down onto these ponds. Another great example of uh, paleo and uh, experimental design and just how setting up a really strong sampling protocol in order to test these specific hypotheses can give you amazing results. Yeah, and another um, key element of showing, you know, anthropogenic impacts in these incredibly remote that environments that, you know, if anywhere was going to be pristine, you would think it would be, you know, a yes. tiny pond um, at, I don't even know what the uh, latitude would be um all the way up there north of super high yeah super high um but yeah so just like the 1994 uh, uh, science paper was showing you know climate change impacts in these ponds and this one is showing ponds uh, contaminated and things like ddt and 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 other um uh other non-natural contaminants yeah that have been transported all all the way up to like the ends of the earth very literally Mm -hmm. Yep. And then transported up the ends of the earth and then these 
birds feed quite high in the trophic level and um and poop at crazy numbers crazy amounts into the the lakes and and it ends up in the sediments and they also i mean there are there's a like a science paper as you know adam knows very well and uh, we've talked about is is a short couple of pages at most but there's a ton of data in there as well there's the nitrogen isotope data to track a trophic level for the organism so just a, a lot of information piled into a, a short four pager absolutely paper number four paper number four a name that is familiar and i believe i didn't uh, open up the author list to the second paper by bronwyn but i'd be shocked uh marianne douglas again uh, lead author on this so she has been on all four of the papers uh, it's as much marianne's list as it is john's and that should make sense given that it's mostly arctic related stuff but without further ado douglas et al 2004 in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the USA, prehistoric Inuit whalers affected Arctic freshwater ecosystems. You'd think we were we were picking them based on the short titles. So they're all snappy, uh, short ones. <laughs> it's going, they're all in science. In PNAS. I'm, going, I'm going for snappy for a reason, because, mm -hmm. you know, this is like very much a diversity in terms of the topics, but where this one is cool um is that it instead of like modern impacts on northern lakes it is like archaeology or paleolimnology tying in with archaeological digs to find long-term impacts of uh prehistoric uh inuit whalers um that there was still a legacy of impacts on some of these freshwater ponds which is crazy when you think about it because uh, a couple hundred years later um, the nutrient enrichment caused by uh, pulling a whale ashore and butchering it, uh, you know, just close to a near pond caused eutrophication that was still detectable and I think uh, still observable just still, visually yeah. uh, mm -hmm. to this day. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Sometimes 800 years later, depending on the, the age of the um, uh, age of the site. These were these ones are for Somerset Island. They've worked on Thule and uh, Dorset, which are paleo, paleo Eskimo group, which are even older sites uh, elsewhere and since. Um, but yeah, uh, amazing for a whole range of reasons. I've seen John give lots of talks to lots of different audiences. And these slides, like the reconstructed house from the bones that has been built on Somerset by the Museum of Nature and the impacts and, and just the idea, uh, the, the sheer, um, you know, concept of, of these Inuit hunters, fishers, hunters, I guess, hunters uh, going out and slaughtering a bowhead whale and dragging it ashore and the impact it had on the ecosystem is amazing. Yeah, and it is something that, uh, you know, it's one of those things where a combination of the images, because the bones are still visible, that they would have used as like the... Uh, wood? Yeah, a wood equivalent as like a structural material <laughs> yeah. in their, yeah. um, I don't know if they would... Tents, homes, I'm not yeah. sure what... Sure, what dwellings, else. we'll call yeah. them dwellings. Uh, are still there. 
So you just have these large skeletons on the landscape and then like a little, you know, a very sort of like greenish, mossy, enriched area around the the, the water body. And it's, you know, and, uh, you know, reference my mom a fair bit on, on the podcast in the past is like my test lay person of like just running cool ideas by her in paleo. And this is the kind of thing that just would struck a chord from her um, immediately when you'd show her a picture or tell her a story. And it'd be just like, really? And it's like, yep, no, you can totally still see the evidence to this day. If you, if you were able to get up there, you wouldn't have to do anything. You could just walk across the island and you would be able to see, oh, yes. There was one. There was one. Yeah, there yeah, was yeah, one. Exactly. For sure, and I think that that would be the case with a lot of people. And and a good part of that is just how impoverished these sites are of nutrients. Normally, how cold it is, how short the growing season is, how limited the geology and the um, you know how extensive the permafrost, uh, and just how significant a subsidy of nutrients a whale is. A bowhead whale is a very large organism. It's the longest lived mammal on earth, I believe. You know, the oldest mammals alive. Um, they can live to be a couple hundred years old. Um, and, and part of that, going back to the, the birds and the uh, trophic levels, is again using similar methods. Nitrogen 15 as a marker of uh, high trophic organisms, even higher in this case, because a bowhead whale is ancient and, you know, in, in age, um, feeds, even though it feeds on tiny little things in the ocean. Uh, and, and then this has a range of different methods in it and further research on these sites that, that all of the, uh, the authors were involved when just really rounds out this story. All right. All right. That's it. Number five. What'll it be? I think again, uh, in terms of I guess greatest hits of not, maybe not necessarily be the right one, but just memorable papers. So we're going to, this is like a, this is a deep cut, I guess would be one way to describe it. <laughs> you got to have one. There's always one on every album. And that would be uh, John's first paper. Uh, hey. It's a small 1980 in the Canadian Journal of Botany. And the title is Fossil Cyneresian Cyrus of Oh my goodness, you're gonna have to read this. This is your, Fossil your album. Cyneration Chrysophysiae Scales in Lake Sediments, a new group of paleo indicators. So there we go. Um, and this would be way back. Way back. And but I think, you know, if you were passing this off to a pers prospective student interested in joining Pearl. Uh, or doing a paleo-lunage project. You show all this other stuff of high Arctic research, long-term form, lots of uh, science papers, PNAS papers. Um, and then, but also throw in his very first paper as an uh, indicator of like humble beginnings because uh, he would have still been in a grad. This would have been his master's, master's research, student. right? Yeah. Yeah, these are in, these lakes are less northern than mm. the last uh, ones. This is in Ontario. Uh, lakes, looking at the impacts of development, road development, I believe, on yep. uh, on a couple of lakes, and uh, yep. comparing it to a control. But yeah, really, well, I mean, that's an important thing too. Is that you know a lot of I mean, he can be known for a lot of different things. Known for the Arctic work, 
known for the acid rain work, but really something that John is is very well known for is uh, chrysophytes and identifying chrysophytes as a, a commonly used paleolimnological indicator, both the scales, which is what this is about, but also the chrysophyte cysts, which we've talked about a little bit. So I think that's a good way to round it out and, and think about sort of the, uh, the huge um, uh, impact that John has had in a wide range of different aspects of uh, paleolimnology. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think, um, yeah, like there's a very serious breadth to the amount of research that he's done. Um, and there's a lot of it and it can be a daunting, uh, well, I mean, even 20 years ago, it was daunting to kind of like get a handle on the output of the lab. Um, but now, you know, uh, I think, I think this would be a pretty good list of like, just to pass on to someone who's going to Pearl of like, yeah, this is the kind of stuff that they do there. All right, there we go. We did it. There's number number five. Number five, and our last one of these lists. This is very much our list, and you may disagree, and that's fine. Um, but these are the kind of things that we would send in a welcome. And I guess in this case, it's not a welcome to the product type of email, but a welcome to the lab email, or I'm thinking yep. of contacting John to do some research, uh, to do a master's yes, kind of email. One. Very good. Um, and uh, especially in this one, um, Again, because it was just a case of what jumped out at us as particularly cool slash neat, you could have a very large variety of different lists that you could pull out of that. Definitely. It'd be a good starting place. You know, you could pick for each of those projects, as we've said, a different paper, two, three, mm -hmm. to uh, to summarize it and to be the the indicator list or indicator paper for the list. Um, and you could also do a totally different set of northern ones you could do a totally you could do a you know a list of of perlio papers from uh out out east out west either way lots of opportunity but these are the ones that that seem to kind of speak to us when we were putting it together yeah like i mean i don't know what his total is it's something like 800 ish uh papers to choose from i think he's got an h index of over 100 so i mean yeah. uh there's lots of choices uh, to put on this list, and we just thought it was a neat thing to do given his recent recognition at the IPA. And so as we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to talk about uh, in terms of the Northern Paleo section, the IPA meeting, etc.? Any other um, call-out, shout-outs? I mean, nothing... Uh you know, systematic, nothing that I have like really well thought. It was a good meeting. Uh, it was good to see a bunch of other former Perlites, colleagues, that kind of thing. Uh, in addition, we we mentioned John winning the uh, Lifetime Achievement Award, Catherine Hargan, who uh, we did graduate work with and I was a postdoc with, who's now a professor at Memorial University in Newfoundland, won the Early Career Award, uh, one of two. Congratulations. That, so congrats to her. And uh, they both gave, um, well, so John gave a talk in session, like a, a science talk, a 15-minute and then did a little perspective thing when he got his award. Hargan did a, um, a a plenary talk that was a little bit longer and was really cool uh, about her work. A lot of the stuff she's been doing in Newfoundland uh, related to seabirds again, and and that's part of one of her background topics. Um, but yeah, just really interesting. Uh, it was a good meeting for all of those different things. 
as was coming up with this list, you know, a little bit of Pearl nostalgia is always fun. And we all like to engage in it every now and then. Absolutely. How about you? Anything else uh, came came to mind as we, I guess, wrap up this list, but all the reading lists for now? Oh, I think there are a couple ones just on the Pearl nostalgia level. I think, um, you know, when looking through the Pearl list and then thinking about IPA awards and lifetime achievements, it's hard not to think about John Glue, who... um, all, who also got uh, a lifetime achievement award in the previous he got meeting the or service two? award he got the uh, service award at two meetings before that i think in glasgow okay if i'm not mistaken and uh he passed away when 2018 2018 yeah 2018 that sounds right or 20 or 2019 2019 it was the spring of 2019 his uh nathan was born we were driving when we got that email um you know you shouldn't check your emails when you're driving uh, but i get them to my watch so i was like looked at my watch and the and i saw the email from john and it was you know about john john glue passing away i was like and we were driving back from st Catharines, and uh yeah that was uh it was a hard hard one to bear we did all get the chance to uh get together uh at queen's to celebrate uh him uh that spring summer um before the pandemic so that was good and if anyone is interested in that and and, uh i recorded the audio of all the speeches and you can find them on youtube and just for some background my youtube channel john glue some background was it uh the technical director at pearl for many many years and so he developed uh coring equipment so many listeners may not necessarily know the name john glue but they may be familiar with the glue core um and uh, yeah, no, he was uh, uh, great to have, you know, just a fixture of the lab for many, 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 many years. And uh, for sure. And not, and like best known for the core, but did all sorts of illustrations. So <clears throat> probably not for the Christophite paper that we just talked about, but many of John's uh, books were illustrated exclusively or, or primarily by John Glue, um, in addition to nearly every map in every paper before GIS came about in, in the lab. So, yeah. And including illustrations, um, we've referred before to the Hutchison tree and like John was like very much an illustrator. And so he did a small tree years, years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, basically just, uh, that's up in John's office to this day, highlighting all the students that have come out of John's lab and gone on, um, and those that have gone on in, in academia as well. You'd be a leaf yeah. now, wouldn't you? you I'm a leaf on there, yeah. Mm-hmm. You too. I, I don't have any branches. Okay, that's, what, that's, 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 just what, PhDs. that's what I was getting at. So you do not. Yeah, yeah. It's just PhDs. Um, so I guess because mine and Jenny are sort of intertwined, which is one of the, the fun things about it. Um, hopefully we don't get divorced because that would be awkward on the small tree. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. So that was uh, one of the. Not very often would I say I have a good idea, um, mm. you know, but uh, that was something that I pushed pretty hard to bring about um, and to collect the data for. And Emily Stewart actually helped way more even than I did in getting John Glue because I had the idea before I left to make one. And it wasn't the first person to come up with it, but just to push it forward. Um, but the main reason that I think we decided to do it at that time was to have John Glue draw it because you never know right and then only a couple years later unfortunately we lost him and uh yeah so it shows all the phd students up to 
whatever it was done in 2016 or yeah. something like that. I think it, yeah. I think it was given to John as a surprise at the second pals that took place at Queens, which would have been 2016. And I can tell you it was being worked on up until the night before. <laughs> so it was, it was accurate to that day. <laughs> thanks john glue uh yeah won't forget it and and actually uh john did show that picture in his um little uh acceptance address at the uh at the paleo uh meeting so ah very cool very very cool Mm -hmm. all right then uh there we go. There we Where do we go next? What's the plan? Any? We haven't really thought about what's next. Not really a thought process. We've, the, we've slowed down. This has been a... We thought... I, I don't know if we were ambitious. This has ambitious been a slow arc. Or it was just... Uh, it could be just bad luck. Christmas and the being away for the paleo meeting and, and you know... Illnesses and jobs and discovery grants and all that kind of yeah. stuff. But anyway, um, we'll have to think about what we're going to do for the next arc. Uh, check yeah, the mailbag recently. Let us know. Yeah, let us know in the mailbag. There's nothing in the mailbag today. We got a very nice Twitter DM just telling us uh, that they enjoy the show. Um, but we've not really been using Twitter very much, even for uh, nope. um, advertising show episodes, because I was not a heavy Twitter user beforehand. But the algorithm is definitely degrading. and Very quickly. I uh, um, Yeah, I don't know. It might be time to start looking into getting a Mastodon handle, whatever that is. Something. And, be, yeah. and, and something else. And tooting. Um, I mean, it, really, all we do is pictures. Like, we put up one picture. We could just put it on Instagram. <laughs> like, it's one picture. We would do it every couple months. It would yeah. be more Instagram posts than on my own, like, personal Instagram page. So maybe that's where okay. I don't think we'll be on TikTok. Anyway, stay tuned to uh, to this this space to, uh, to hear if and and or when the core ideas social media <laughs> crops up we do check it we just don't actively engage with it so yeah. we, we will see your messages but we probably won't be replying to them significantly we'll just respond to them in audio form several months later exactly yeah you'd think it's you know like the idea that <laughs> this came out four months after the the paleo meeting is because we have this huge back catalog and we're preparing <laughs> we're like six months ahead in terms of episodes no <laughs> no we're six months behind in terms of episodes <laughs> so what can you do we're having fun with it still yeah uh something probably a little bit easier to prepare next uh, kind of reset uh, get us back into a groove of putting them out not every six weeks or yeah. eight weeks but every four weeks um and then maybe we'll go back to a, a yeah. small picture redux kind yeah. of thing and, and do some more messy stuff after that yeah i think it might be time to do uh something of like what we're both become intimately more familiar with over the course of this podcast run would be the money side of paleolimnology or research in general. I think we could probably do yep. some uh, some interesting little screeds uh, yeah, on that. For sure. The stuff you don't think about, but will one day keep you up at night is what we can call it. I need to shorten the title. So you got an idea. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool, cool, cool. All right. Well, once again, Thanks for listening to Core Ideas, the Paleo Limnology podcast. If you have a question or a comment, or perhaps a suggestion for a future show, please send us a note. 
Our email address is coreideaspodcast at gmail.com. That's probably the best way to get us. But you're also, as we just said, we're still on Twitter at Core Ideas Paleo. We read everything you send to us eventually. And an archive of our past episodes and some of the show notes is maintained on our website at coreideas.ajeziorski.ca. The link is listed in our Twitter bio. And if you are so inclined, you can give us a rating, leave us a review, or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, I think still, wherever you get your podcasts. Those interactions would be great, but to be honest, we don't care all that much because there's so few of them and we're just still doing this for fun and that's it for today and although this was the last of our core reading lists we will be back soonish with a fresh arc related to paleo limnology sticking to our ethos of pure knowledge without the economy